All right, Dave. So with so few role models, I would say, in this space, as a black man, how did you find out you were heterosexual? How did you discover you were polyamorous? How did you become a sex worker and a sex educator? Like, just tell me your whole entire story, because (laughs) me... Three years ago, I started this podcast, Something Positive for Positive People, and while I just set out to help the people who were living with herpes, it expanded into me landing in sex education, sex positivity, and being in this space, all I had to look to for any sort of guidance was primarily cisgendered, not all the way straight white women. And there were maybe a handful of black women that I sort of discovered more recently along the way. So tell me about your journey in this space. Um, yeah, that's that that's real. When I when I first discovered the the sex positive movement, I was probably in my late teens, early twenties, like high school, uh, undergrad, and all my role models were like white bisexual or pansexual women. And almost all of them living on the coast, either San Francisco or New York. So it was people like Susie Bright, Annie Sprinkle, Betty Dotson um, at first, and then later people like Carol Queen, Tristan Terramino. And it did cause some, I don't don't know what the word is, but it, it caused some anxiety on my part that I felt like all the people that were doing the work I wanted to be doing were white bisexual women like I didn't see where I fit in I didn't see where I would have credibility I didn't I was worried about how people would take that same information from a heterosexual black man um but I kind of took it and ran with it anyway and once and the more involved I got the more I realized how diverse the sex education community was it was just the people that were sort of easily accessible to me via the media were all, you know, white women. But once I really started to get involved and travel and go to events and present at events, I started seeing people more like myself. So like the first black man that I ever met in the sex education community was a, a brother named Delano. Uh, and he had a website at the time called Delano in Distress. And he was not only a black man, but he was a submissive. And he was teaching classes on submission. And at the time, that's somewhat more common now, but we're talking, this is 2004, so like 15 years ago, I didn't meet a lot of black people in the sex education community, not a lot of black men, certainly not, you know, heterosexual black men or even, you know, black men who had sex with women, whether they were bi or pan. And most of the educators, regardless of race or gender, were teaching about being dominant, being a top, you know, all the classes were like how to tie rope, how to flog people, how to suspend people. It was all sort of like topping and dominant skills. So here was this black man teaching skills on being a submissive or being a bottom. And I was, I, I just gushed all over him. I was like, oh my God, like, thank you for existing. Like, thank you for being here. And when I went to my first uh, BDSM conference in 2004, my mother drove me to the airport and I told her I was going to a BDSM. She found out, like, in the car on the way to the airport that I was going to a BDSM conference. And my mother, being my mother, said, well, bring me back some literature. 
And my mother, as a black woman who, you know, came of age in the 1960s during like the civil rights movement, she just always feared for my safety. Anytime I did anything that was in any way outside of the mainstream or anytime I was going to be in a, you know, predominantly white environment. So sending her baby off to this BDSM conference, I think, was kind of terrifying for her. And so it was, I don't know if it was Delano's class or if there was a picture. I think there was actually a picture of Delano in bondage on the syllabus from a class taught by Lee Harrington. And that's what I brought back to my mother. And so just the fact that there was a black man on the syllabus from the literature that I brought back, it I don't know that it eased her mind. I think I think it, it in a way it was good in a way it was bad because the sight of a black man in bondage was like wild triggering for my mom. But just to know that there were other black people there and there were other black people in the scene, I think made it easier for her. And it made it, it made it easier for me. And one of the things that I do now when I travel is I host meet and greets for people of color at BDSM events. Because what kept happening was I'd go to a BDSM event and in each of my classes, there would be one black person or one person of color, maybe two, or I'd be in an elevator and they would write, they'd see my little presenter badge and we'd be the only two people of color in the elevator. And constantly I was getting black people saying, where are the black people at? And I was like, oh, there was one black person in my class, but I didn't get their name. I could connect the two of you. And so I'd always say, oh, did you go to Delano's class? Did you go to Molina Williams' class? Did you go to Murphy Blue's class? And they were like, who are these people? So, like, there would be, like, other presenters of color and African-American presenters at the conference. And the few black people who were at the conference wouldn't even know. So I started hosting these meet and greets to get all the people of color together. And we'd talk about who the other people of color presenters at the conference were, whose events they could go to. And just so that we would get the people of color in one, one room so they could look at each other and see each other and network and, and connect. Um, so, yeah, and when I first started, all my role models were white bisexual women. And most times I would go to spaces, I would be one of the only black people there. And it's evolved a lot, or it's gotten better. It's still not great. But what, and honestly, I don't, I feel like Sex Positive St. Louis could still do a better job as far as diversity is concerned. But at the same time, we're probably, uh, I don't know if I can say the most diverse anymore because so many like newer and younger and more queer and more uh, people of color led organizations have came up. But, you know, just a few years ago, we were easily the most diverse alternative sexuality group in, in the city as, as far as race, gender, age range, at least at least as far as my experience is concerned. OK, um, damn, man. So what you brought up the uh, black man in bondage thing and how triggering <laughs> that was or could have been for your mom. How well received are you by peers for being involved in this space? Well, one of the first things my mom said to me, it, it may have been after that trip and specifically, uh, but one of the first things she said is, I don't understand why a black man would willingly put himself in bondage. And I get that. I 100% get that, given the history. But at the same time, I feel like if I'm if my choices are limited by history, I'm not free. Can you say that again? If my choices are limited by history... I'm not free. You know, what did you fight for 
if I can't do something in 2019 because of what happened 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 400 years ago. And uh, there's a guy named Peter Tupper, white guy in Canada. He just wrote a book on the history of BDSM, and he's currently writing a book on uh, BDSM representations in the media. And he did this lecture on you know, BDSM and history, the history of BDSM. And I think it was, it was in Canada. So I imagine it was almost entirely white people. Um, cause when I was in Canada, it was all white people. And, uh, I think when he, they, when he said history of BDSM, they thought he was going to talk about, you know, the society of Janus or, you know, the, the birth of the leather community. But when he started, he starts talking about slavery. He starts talking about feudal Japan and he starts talking about, how workers were disciplined on pirate ships. Like he was talking about like the real history, like where this comes from historically. And you could hear a rat piss on cotton. Like people were not ready. And so I started incorporating, incorporating that in some of my lectures, specifically when I speak to like vanilla people or like universities, I speak a lot at universities and I was at this university and I was speaking and I said, okay, we have to acknowledge that we are eroticizing real people's pain. You know, we are taking things that were used against slaves, things that were used against uh, prisoners, things that were used against, you know, poor people, you know, things that are still being used in, you know, enhanced interrogation techniques and things like that in the military and wartime. And we're eroticizing that and we have to, you know, acknowledge that. And one of the comments that I got, one of the anonymous comments that I got from the students was he must not think about history much. And part of me is like, first of all, I'm pissed off because I led that whole presentation with talking about history and I can't say for certain, but I'm 99% sure that if a white guy had given that same speech and not mentioned history at all, they would not have made that comment. It was specifically because I'm a black man who is a submissive and willingly gets put into bondage and gets beaten talking about BDSM that they're like, Oh, he must not think about history, even though I spoke about it. And so I feel like again, it's, I'm, I'm less free because people think that my actions, my beliefs, you know, even my kink and my sexuality have to be circumscribed by what was done to my ancestors. When I was in undergrad in, in college, I was in a performance art class and we put on this performance art festival and I did BDSM performance art. And I was working with a friend of mine who is like an experienced performance artist and installation artist. And she said to me, you do realize people are going to think this is a comment on slavery. And I honestly hadn't considered that. And she's like, look, if I did the same, she was a white Jewish woman. She said, if I did the same thing you're doing, people would project upon it that it was about the Holocaust or the persecution of the Jews. And, and she was right, but it wasn't, she wasn't saying don't do this. She was saying, go Be in ready. with your eyes open, which I appreciated. And so I feel like I've gotten there's I've, there's tension within the BDSM community and within the mainstream vanilla community about the intersection of race and BDSM and you know some of it's valid but I think ultimately it comes down to what is what is uh Carol Queen one of my heroes a sex educator in San Francisco said ultimately you have to obey the politics of what makes your dick hard and your pussy wet now, I've got some hard limits in that regard. I don't do race play. You know, I, 
I've had, you know, white dominatrixes, dominatrix, do, oh God. The, the, I think that was it. The right? word. Some like, some prefer dominatrixes, dominatrices, uh, dome, uh, whatever, doms. I had a white dom in like a second message, call me nigger. Uh, and I was like, all right, we're done. Like hard, you know. If, if you're really into race play and you want to negotiate with me, I'm probably just going to say hard pass. But to just go there without any negotiation, you know, I can't do that. What entitlement. Exactly. Yeah. But also, I don't, you know, shit on black people in the scene or people in the, people of color in the scene who are into race play and who are into race play as submissives and who are into, like, slave play and things like that. That's their kink. Now, if you're doing it in a public dungeon, I'm probably going to be on the other side because it's wild triggering. But if that's what you're into, fine. You're you're free. Do mm-hmm. what you... If you can't be free... In the S&M space, where can you be free? That reminds me of when I was in college. The first white girl I had sex with, I was having sex with her, and she said, fuck me with that nigga dick. I came so hard afterwards, but I know I was like, after that, I was just like, I can't keep doing this. After learning about where that comment came from and really thinking about how it made me feel, it was like, why the fuck did I get so turned on by that? And it's not that I'm a fucked up person for being able to like get off to that, but it was just like, when you sit and you ask hard questions, like, all right, well, why did I get turned on by that? Oh, it's because it was some shit that I've seen in porn and in the association with porn. Historically, I guess, in my mind, interracial porn, the guy's like rage fucking the woman and it's kind of like a payback or something. So when I realized that, that was what it was, it was just like this conflict of integrity. Do I want to even participate in this like hate type play, even driven by racism, which is something that I don't support? Or am I going to perpetuate this shit because it's hot? So it's just like, all right, I'm going to step away from that altogether. And since then, I haven't had that happen to me. But I just remember thinking about it and being like, damn, why did that happen? So it's important for us to be able to question uh, different things that may turn us on, that may potentially cross boundaries, uh, and that may, you know, be avoids for us. Like, this is where we realize what we do, don't like, what we will and will not put up with in terms of how we go about having sex with other people. You got anything you want to add to that at all? Well, I would just say that I think being called the N-word, and I kind of hate the phrase the N-word. I usually just say nigger, but for the purpose of this conversation even though i've said nigger like four times but being called the n-word by a white person is painful and it's triggering right but so much of bdsm is about taking what is painful and triggering and eroticizing it right so it makes perfect sense to me why that would be a turn-on but at the same time if we didn't negotiate it if i didn't ask for it and someone did it my question is, okay, where is that coming from? The fact that you said that without me specifically asking for it or negotiating it ahead of time, that's coming from somewhere in this white person that is now making me feel away. Like, you know, how safe do I feel with this person if they've got that on deck and they let it fly without any warning? Um, you know, I feel like so much of kink is playing with taboo. But I feel like there's a line between bringing taboo into the bedroom and bringing white supremacy into the bedroom. And we all are dealing with white supremacy every day, every time we leave our house, houses, even before we leave our houses. But 
after all that, it's like, okay, how much of that can I deal with, like, in my bedroom with my partner, especially my primary partner who is, like, my safe space? So I get why race play turns people on. It's not for me. But as someone who dates, you know, primarily white women, I'm not going to judge somebody for letting their partner, like, you know, call them nigger, you know, in in the bedroom. Like, if we're at a party and I hear them calling you nigger, it's like, okay, I'm kind of done with both of you. But, like, you know, in that that kink space, because, you know, I let white women piss on me, right? You know, I would also let a black woman piss on me. But if I made a videotape of myself being pissed on by a white woman and put that on the internet, people are going to racialize that you know, in ways that maybe didn't even occur to me at the time with this partner. So I can't judge other people for what their kink is or what turns them on. Again, it comes back to Carol Queen. Like, you kind of got to obey the politics of what makes your dick hard and your pussy wet. And I'm not going to shame anybody for what they do as consensual adults, as long as no one's hurt, harmed. Cool. What sent you down the path of exploring your sexuality and knowing that you like to be pissed on that you are submissive that you like bondage like where did that start um i think the the submissive the submission thing kind of started um i was sexually abused as a kid um and i want to preface this by saying a my abusers were both also children they were just slightly older than me and it was very mild like it wasn't like hugely traumatic sexual abuse Um, if I had a less intense word for it, I would use it. And I didn't even call it that until I was in my thirties. I was having a conversation with my partner at the time and I was like, well, I've never been, you know, I've never been molested. I've never been abused. And she said, okay, well, what about this that happened when you were five? And what about this that happened when you were 10? What about this that happened? And I was like, yeah, but I wouldn't call those things sexual abuse. And she goes, okay, if the exact same thing happened to your five-year-old daughter, what would you call it? I was like, okay, you, you got me. Um, and so, and it took me forever. It took me to my, like, an amateur Freudian could have figured me out in, like, 17 seconds. It took me into my 30s to connect the kind of sexual abuse that I went through as a kid with my being a submissive and being an exhibitionist and being into kink. You know, one of my first sexual experiences was an older kid, like, you know, forcing me to masturbate in front of him. And it's like, you know... I very soon after that started acting out in school and, you know, flashing and exposing myself and things like that and, and making no connection between these things and making no connection between that and being a nudist and an exhibitionist as an adult. So I think a lot of it just came from those experiences in early childhood and then even getting really comfortable with being an exhibitionist and being a submissive and all the kink that I was into as an adult. Um, when my wife passed away, my kinks really changed. And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought until my therapist asked me specifically if my kinks changed after my wife died. And I said, yes, is that a thing? And she's like, oh, absolutely. There's this thing called, um, I think it's like uh, hypersexuality and grief. And it was so reassuring just to know that that was enough of a thing that psychologists were studying it because I just felt super weird that my wife dies and all of a sudden I want people to piss in my mouth because that was not a thing. (laughs) It wasn't even something that I thought about, let alone found erotic or actually, you know, asked people to do to me. So I feel like 
there was the experiences that we all have in early childhood that in a lot of ways form the seed of our sexuality and and psychologists and researchers will, will back that up and then there are just experiences that we have where that already sets us on a path and i think that kind of alters how we will interpret other experiences that we have as teenagers as young adults and even you know i'm in my 40s and my sex life is changing a lot it's interesting you say that something from childhood kind of shapes our sexuality we had a bdsm and kink coach on um probably episode 87 and what she said was disney made her kinky she was watching uh aladdin and the scene where jasmine was tied up in bondage she was like oh i like that and that was something that she just held on to um into her adulthood so we know that there's a link between early on sexual experiences and how they play out in adulthood two questions i have here one i'm learning that playing these traumatic events out in kink can be a very healing and therapeutic process and then the second thing that i want to touch on is beginning to really question and explore whatever that is without it being triggering so for example you say you learned that you like being pissed on so i know that we're in a time where anyone who's questioning their sexuality from a heterosexual um or even homophobic person's perspective what i see from people who are most homophobic is that if you have any questioning about your sexuality then that automatically makes you something that you don't believe you are. So they're more afraid of being gay or liking trans women or uh, liking men. So first question, let's start there. (laughs) Using kink to heal our traumas. Absolutely. Absolutely. I should preface this by saying, you know, I have a, a master's degree, but it's in creative writing. So that's my minor. Yeah. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. I am not a professional a therapist, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I'm a writer, but I've been in the kink community my entire adult life. And I think it's something you have to think about and you have to be careful with. And you really have to, if you're going to use kink to process trauma, you really have to trust the person you're with, they have to trust you, and you have to negotiate the hell out of it. So is it about more trust or experience and expertise? Um, I think trust is most important because you can be super experienced in BDSM and kink. And if the person can't trust you and you don't trust them, you're, you're, you can still reinforce trauma. Um, so I think trust is trusting the person you're with and being trustworthy and valuing their consent and sticking to what you've negotiated is super important expertise i think is is secondary and unless you're doing something that's like super dangerous like you know i don't i could trust you to do fire play but if you suck at fire play you could burn me but i think from an emotional standpoint the trust is most important and honoring the trust and honoring their consent i was in a situation with a, a young woman who was well my girlfriend at the time she's it's separate from the story but she's no longer with us um and I started reenacting a real life trauma with her in the middle of a scene that I had not negotiated. And she stopped the scene. She safe worded. And this young woman was a heavy player. Like I felt like there was nothing I could do to her that would put a dent in her as a bottom or as a sub- submissive. Is this your trauma or her trauma? Mine. Okay. 
And so she stopped it yes. at your trauma. That's the level of trust that yeah. you had with one another. And she stopped it. I thought she was stopping it for, for her sake. And it was actually a conversation I was having at her memorial with another guy she played with. And he was telling me some of the some of the place some of the dark places they went together, and that's when I realized, oh no, she wasn't stopping that for her sake. She was stopping it for mine. She was looking out for me, and so, and it was messed up on my part. This was like you know not quite ten years ago. Um, so I was I was a grown ass man, but not where I am now. But it was messed up on my part to just bring that into the middle of a scene without having discussed it ahead of time. So that was bad on me. It wasn't a conscious thing though, was it? Um I mean it was. But I and I probably wouldn't have done it with a less experienced player, but I figured like, oh, she's, you know, this is a girl who's done like guillotine play. Who the hell first of all, who has a guillotine? And who's gonna put their head in it, right? So I figured like this isn't gonna phase her at all. And it probably didn't phase her for her sake. She's like, he's not ready to do this. So I'm going to stop before, you know, he hurts himself psychologically. Um, so, but I absolutely think, because here's the thing that I feel like, so like I'm a nudist, right? My first experience with, you know, taking my clothes off in front of someone that, you know, wasn't like my parents or my doctor was feeling threatened. Like, you have to do this because I want you to do this. And this is when I was probably five years old. And then it happened again when I was probably, like, 10 or 11, a, a older woman, um, still a girl, a child, but older than me, like, threatened me with, like, physical harm if I didn't take my clothes off for her. And so now I'm a nudist. And again, amateur Freudian would have knocked that out in 11 seconds. Took me years to connect these events. I mean, now I, I throw clothing optional parties. I've been throwing clothing optional parties for 10 years, right? So I think it's easy to say that I've taken my childhood trauma of forced nudity and now I own it and I've eroticized it and I own it and it's part of who I am. And I even wrote, I wrote a piece. Uh, I have a friend, Maggie McNeil. She's a, like a well-known uh, sex worker and sex worker rights uh, advocate and she asked me to write a, a guest blog for her website. And I wrote this piece called, um, like, Childhood Sexual Abuse Made Me Who I Am. And I could have written that piece at any point. Once I figured it out, I could have put it on the Sex Positive St. Louis blog. I could have put it on davidrafe.com. But it never occurred to me to write about that and publish it until it was on somebody else's blog. Because I wasn't ready to sort of publish it myself. But I totally took my childhood sexual trauma... And have turned it into a really big part of the nonprofit organization that I've been running for ten years, as as well as part of just my personal life. Like um, when I first got into BDSM, I was serving this dominatrix, and we didn't have a sexual relationship for years. I would come to her house, get naked, and, and clean her house for her. And she moved to Georgia. And I was having a hard time, like, recreating that situation with someone else. And I had a, a female friend of mine who was in the King community said, oh, just Google CFNM. And I was like, see what, what, what? It's closed female, naked male. Closed female, naked male. I'd never heard of that. This was just something that I did. You know, I liked being naked with a clothed woman and being in service to her. I didn't know it was a thing. And now it's like, it's my drug of choice. Like, it's how I roll. Like, you know... 
it, it what used to be this really special thing that I did with my dominatrix is now like a Tuesday night at my apartment. Um, so yeah, I've, so, and, and other things, like I can look at all these other things in my childhood that sort of formed who I am sexually and they were just bouncing around in my head and confusing me until I realized that in the kink community in the posit- in the sex positive community, I can take those things that are confusing and triggering and that have just sort of, you know, uh, put a crease in my brain that I haven't ironed out since childhood. I can do those things consensually with people who are experienced and who I trust and who trust me and have my best interest at heart and just flip the script on that trauma. Again, I'm not saying go out and do this. If you were, you know, gang raped by seven people, don't go out and have a gang bang tomorrow, you know, give it some thought and, you know, work on it. But I think that, yeah, like kink can be a great way to sort of replay that trauma in an environment where you have control, it's consensual, you can safe word at any time. And it's, it's like, it's, it's like what they, what they say in the, I used to study uh, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, and it's what they call in the NLP world, in NLP world, uh, collapsing an anchor, I think. It's like, if you scratch a record a bunch of times, the record won't play the same. If you have this negative place that your mind continuously goes to, like a tongue to a bad tooth, and you can't control that, you can create other experiences that replace that memory or at the very least places where your brain can go. So if something triggers me to thinking about, you know, uh, being sexually humiliated, my brain might go to a really hot scene I had with a dominatrix in Manhattan, as opposed to, you know, something that happened against my consent when I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. So it's really about choice. It's not necessarily throw yourself into the kink space and now you're healed it's being able to choose to do so choose to change the narrative that essentially just happened to you and you get to replay it out in the way that reframes it exactly precisely because you know trauma is not erotic for everybody so this is not a cure-all but if you have a trauma that happens to you that's a horrible wound But if you find yourself thinking about it when you masturbate later, there's a lot of shame. Like, why am I getting turned on by this horrible thing that happened to me? Okay, something about that horrible experience was erotic to you. The non-consensual part was not not cool. So we can take the erotic part and recreate that in an environment of consenting adults to sort of replace, not replace that memory, but sort of overlay that memory. Because we conflate the what was erotic about it and what was traumatic about it if we can separate those things and practice the eroticism in a place that's safe sane and consensual but taking out the non-consensual part of it you know that can i mean and i'm not saying you know don't do talk therapy you know if you need it do it i'm not saying don't get on medication if that's what you really need but you know in this context, I think BDSM can be really therapeutic for healing trauma if there's part of that trauma that is erotic to you and that's part of your shame and part of the conflict. Mm-hmm. And it takes for us to recognize that it's there because I feel like if we choose to ignore it, it sort of continues to play itself out in a way. And I don't have a specific example that comes to mind off the bat, but I know that when you try so hard not to 
I do have an example. When you try so hard not to do something or avoid it or put it away, I feel like you constantly sweep things under a rug that you constantly walk around. And once that pile becomes too big under the rug, you trip over it and you're forced to clean that shit up or at least look at it. So for me, my example, I was on Instagram and I swiped up on some article and it took me to a quiz and it was like, what's your kink? What's your BDSM thing? And I had a previous play partner who, before I had language for it, seemed like it was rape. And now that I have language for it, I understand that it was rape play. Now we were consenting adults to the kind of sex we were having, but there was no negotiation. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that she liked to have a certain kind of sex. So for me, that was a triggering thing because it's like, I know women who've been sexually assaulted. This feels like I'm sexually assaulting a woman. So what the fuck am I doing here? But at the same time, it was something that I got off to. It was something that was fun. And once I had language for it, it was like, okay, so the thing that makes this okay is the fact that it was consensual. It was the fact that... Well, it wasn't at that point in time, but she, while we didn't verbalize consent, she was constantly giving consent, just not in the way that I would have expected to have received it. And there was no negotiation process. So in looking at this quiz that I took, what it said was that uh, your kink is the very, the very thing that I was trying not to do that I was so put off by is like, this is a thing that you like. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> So there this thing was right there in my face, the very thing that I had been, you know, fighting against what made my dick hard, essentially. And now it's like, actually, Courtney, here, this is what this is a thing for you. So I now am at a place where I've moved past that because I understand that consent is what makes it OK. So in negotiating it with your partner and talking through it, you establish a level of trust so that this can be brought to a certain point. And if anyone needs to pull out of the scene, there's a safe word in place. And that's I mean, that's that. Well, there's a there's a uh, campaign by NCSF, the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom, or National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, called Consent Counts. And one of the things they're trying to do is change laws around BDSM, because BDSM is illegal in most places, because according to the law, you can't consent to your own assault. So if somebody punches you, that's assault. And if I say, well, I asked them to do it, I can be charged as an accessory to my own assault. Now, I don't know how combat sports avoids that, but, you know, I'm sure there's like, you know, medical requirements or doctors involved or, you know, sports agencies involved. But I can go into, you know, a cage fight and do MMA and that's perfectly legal. But if I'm tied to a St. Andrew's cross and someone's flogging me in a lot of places, that is illegal, even if I consent to it. And if I try to use consent as a defense, I can be charged as well as the person topping me. That's because you're they're not getting the money for it. Well, pretty much. There's not there's not as great a lobby. I mean, we've got, you know, the the Woodhill uh, Sexual Freedom Foundation. We have National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, but it's not like, you know, the NFL or, you know, the you know MMA. Yeah, or... the boxing associations. Um who I used to all know because I was a big boxing fan. But so consent is the deciding factor. You know, if I walk up to someone in, you know, the Del Mar loop and smack them in the face, I'm going to jail. Um, but 
if someone asks me to like slap them in the face, I'm more than happy to do it. It's man, that's hot. Um, so consent is, and that's, and that's the part that we have to teach people. It's not the action. It's whether or not the action was consensual. There's a huge difference between, you know, organizing a gangbang and being gang raped. But I feel like a lot of people outside of the kink community, they don't see that. And again, I am not saying like, you know, hurt people hurt people. You know, why do so many survivors of abuse go on to abuse people? Now, I'm not saying that this is a panacea. I'm not saying that everyone who was abused or molested as a child just needs to do some BDSM and work that shit. I am not saying that. I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. But for me and for a lot of people I know in the scene, being able to act out our darkest sexual fantasies or even relive our sexual traumas in a place that is safe, sane, and consensual is hugely therapeutic. You know, I used to, in, in my like early adulthood, I used to run around naked in public. Like I would parks, you know, I would go to the park at night and get naked and run around. I've run from the St. Louis County police while putting my clothes on. You haven't lived unless you've run from the police while getting dressed. It's while being black. It's amazing. Oh, you, oh <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about the racial component of it, man. I would not do that today. I was on some, I was on one in my twenties, man. Um, I still get urges to get naked in public, but I just tell myself, you know what? You have a clothing optional party coming up in like three weeks, dude, rather than like risk your life and your freedom and risk being put on a sex offender registry, just chill for a couple of weeks until you can do it with, you know, 50 of your closest friends who are also going to be naked. So how exciting is that though, too, to have something like that to look forward to like the anticipation has to build some sort of um there has to be like a build up for the release of finally getting able to do that and be like <sighs> well it's just great to have a healthy outlet for your kinks especially if it's things that would make you you know an anti-social pariah if you did them in polite society or could get you arrested or killed it's great to have a, a for lack of a better word, safe space to do that and to also do it in a way that is beneficial to your community. I'm creating a space where not only I get my needs met because I can be naked, but I'm helping all these other people explore that side of themselves as opposed to imposing it on people in a way that could be damaging to them because I'm constantly negotiating with what is, where does my personal freedom end and someone else's right to exist begin. Like how much, how kinky or sex positive or whatever can I be in vanilla spaces without triggering or offending people? And so it's nice to play with that line in ways that don't hurt people, but it's also nice to know that, okay, but in a couple of weeks, I can just, you know, wild the fuck out with my friends and it's all consensual. It's all good. Yeah. Um, before we move on to questioning your sexuality, because we just talked about questioning your kinks and then being able to play those out. I want to make sure we touch on questioning sexuality. But this is a great place to talk about sex work. You mentioned that us being able to have these 
healthy outlets and spaces and I'm all for the decriminalization of sex work because I've heard stories of different ways that decriminalizing sex work is actually good for society. Let's talk, um, I read a story, heard a story of a man whose child is, his son is disabled and he could tell that his son was sexually frustrated. He masturbated his son and he he was just so much more relaxed. That's love for a father to be able to masturbate his son. Like I can't say that I would be able to do that. And now you cross a line between like, pedophilia and then all right well what if he hires a sex worker for his disabled son and this is just one of many examples that I've come across where sex work is valuable in the community so can you speak a little bit to sex work um, holistically I guess like in other ways that it can benefit society if we're to decriminalize it well I feel like we all agree that sex is this great thing right most of us but we have such issues around sex and such issues around anything that isn't heterosexual, monogamous, missionary, missionary potentially procreative within a married relationship. And so I totally get why there's such a taboo with sex work, even though I also at the same time don't get it. But sex makes you feel good, right? Those of us who have no problem getting our sexual needs met, I don't think we can appreciate what it can be like for someone who, for whatever reason, can't. Whether it's uh, physical disability, mental illness, uh, social anxiety, whatever the barrier between them and partner sex with another person can be, those of us who don't go through that can't appreciate what that's like. I know what I'm like when, you know, my partner's on a trip and I'm not having sex with anybody else. I know she's coming back. I know she loves me. I know she likes having sex with me. We're just separated by, you know, geography. I know what that's like. So for someone who doesn't, you know, it's, it's almost like the difference between someone with, I, I hate using food metaphors, but... There's a feeling you have when you've got money in your pocket and you've got a refrigerator full of food. And there's a feeling you have when you're broke and you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Even if you're not hungry in the moment, the anxiety that you are going to be hungry and you don't know how you're going to get that need met can be crippling. And sexually, not knowing, I mean, not I'm not trying to brag, but I mean, I have several partners. Like... It's very rare that a week goes by where I don't have sex with at least one, if not two of them. And usually that means like I'm sick or I'm traveling or something. So to not know where your next sexual experience is going to come from, I think can cause huge anxiety for people and just has emotional and mental uh, effects that a lot of us can't appreciate. And so the ability to not just be able to, for lack of a better word, have sex on demand if you have the money, but to also have it with a professional, someone who's experienced, as opposed to, you know, going to a bar and getting lucky, but now I have this anxiety to perform, and is this person going to like me, and are they going to are they, are they be satisfied, are they going to say things that are wild triggering for me, whereas with a professional, you don't have to worry about that because they're there for you. 
I think that's beautiful. I think it's beautiful just in concept. And then having been that person, having been that professional, like I've seen it happen. I know that there are people who I have just had sex with and they got their rocks off and they paid me and that was fine. I also know that there are people who had sexual experiences with me where I was paid that really helped them get over something in their life. And it's an honor for me to be able to do that for someone. My thing is, aren't we all kind of paying for sex already anyway? Like, let's talk through the dating process. Let's talk through getting, you know, going to dinner and investing the time. Whereas if one person, if both parties already know, hey, I would like to have this transaction, make the exchange, what's the difference between having that clear upfront communication and then it just kind of being covert like oh well i expect you to take me out to dinner we're talking heteronormative man takes woman out to dinner they go dancing he buys her drinks they go home they have sex she doesn't want to talk to him again so what's the issue with it being criminalized if it's consensual and discussed up front and we just skip all that shit and it's cash to person rather than cash to restaurant to venue to Uber driver, to back home, and then that be it. Well, I mean, it's like the difference between a cash system and a barter system. You know, if I need a dozen eggs, I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy a dozen eggs. I'm not going to go to the grocery store and ask if they need me to wash their windows and how much window washing is worth a dozen eggs. But with sex, we're on this sort of like emotional-based, time-based, and yes, sometimes cash-based barter system where I'm not paying you directly, but I'm investing my time, I'm investing my money on the date, or perhaps the woman is investing her money on the date. Hashtag feminism. You know, I'm investing my, you know, emotional labor, and we may not have sex on the first date or the second date or the third date. We may never have sex. We may find out that we're not sexually compatible. We may find out that there are things that I'm into that you're not into and vice versa. Whereas with a sex worker, you can just cut out the middleman, ask for what you want. They're either providing it or they're not. They can give you a dollar amount and you can do it. And it's it, it just takes a lot of the guesswork out of it and a lot of the time out of it. And again, even if that's it, even if it's even if it's not about therapeutic or healing trauma, even if it's just about getting your rocks off and getting your sexual needs met, why is that anybody's business? Uh, there was, I wish I could remember who posted, who said it, but there was a, a tweet that turned into a meme where the guy said, if you think a sex worker sells their body, but a coal miner doesn't, your problem is not with work. Your problem is with sex. You know, we all sell our bodies to some extent. We're either selling our bodies or we're selling our minds or we're selling a combination of both. I've been a sex worker. I've been a travel agent. I've been a waiter. People are people treated me way worse when I was a travel agent and when I was waiting tables than when we were doing sex work. Absolutely 100%. And I made way more money doing sex work. And I made more money doing sex work than I make at my day job now. <laughs> it just wasn't consistent and there were no benefits. Yeah. And you're uh, retired now until the right offer comes I'm along. I'm semi-retired, <laughs> but I will I will 
I will consider any reasonable offer. <laughs> but I have a day job now, so it's not like a financial a necessity to do sex work. Yeah. So how do you manage the emotional aspect of between your polyamorous relationships and sex work and having so many types of having so many relationships, period? How do you manage the emotional connection piece there? Like, do you turn off the emotions for sex work and turn it on for your sexual partners? How do we deal with this? Um, that's not a bad description. It's kind of compartmentalizing. And also it depends on the client and what it is they're asking for. You know, there are times when my emotions do get involved with sex work. There are times when they absolutely don't. But there are times when my emotions are more or less involved based on the relationship I have with my partners outside of sex work. Um, it really depends on the relationship. And so you do a lot of compartmentalizing, but it's, it's not, for me, it's not hard. I mean, it helps that I'm kind of a slut in general. You know, I've had a lot of sex with a lot of people, and some of it are people that I am in love with, and, you know, they're my emergency contact. And then there are people that I have great sex with, but if their car breaks down the side of the road, I'm hoping that I'm maybe like the fifth or the fourth or fifth person they're going to call. And with sex work, it's kind of the same way. Like I have about the same investment in a sex work client that I would have in like a casual sex partner, as opposed to a girlfriend or my fiance or something like that. So it's not like you're looking at the person as like a doctor looks at a patient. You're worth this much money. Like you're also, it's a human. You treat them like a human. Oh yeah. All right. Well, like I waited tables, you know, I cared a certain amount that people had a good experience in the restaurant because I wanted them to have a good experience, but you know, I wouldn't have done it for free for them. But, you know, my friends, my family, I will cook for them and serve them food for free because I love them and I want them to feel good. You know, it's 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 that to me, it's that simple. There are lots of services that we provide to the people that we love free of charge that we would charge a stranger for if it's our business. And I don't see sex as being wildly different from that. Yeah. Being polyamorous. You have multiple partners. What is your relationship like with each one? Do any two look the same? Are these all co-created from the get-go? Are you getting specific needs met from specific people? Is there a cap on the number of partners? Like basic, what is polyamory type questions and what does it look like to you? These, these are the kinds of questions I'm asking. I think that lots of relationships are similar and been the similar categories, but no two relationships are exactly alike obviously and every relationship has its own g-force as i like to call it so i have a primary partner who i'm engaged to and congratulations thank you and so i know i'm going to spend my weekends with her you know she's my emergency contact i'm hers if i get invited to a wedding you know she's going to go with me unless she's busy or you know unavailable and then i don't like to i don't like to use terms like secondary partner or tertiary partner just because it feels like a ranking system but I feel like you know whether you say it or not relationships are kind of getting ranked organically based on how strongly you feel for the person how often you see them how many resources you're devoted to that person um so yeah every relationship I think kind of finds its own level and has its own g-force and I feel like the hard thing can just be being honest about that and setting the expectations 
and acknowledging when the expectations change for either partner and is that uh, tenable for both partners? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've had casual relationships that turned into, uh, you know, really emotionally committed relationships. And I've had really emotionally committed relationships and then broken up with that person. But then I'm still sexually attracted to them or they're still sexually attracted to me or we're still friends. And if we were monogamous and we broke up, and especially if one or both of us had new partners, that would be the end of that sexual relationship. But being, if I'm with a, if I'm polyamorous and I break up with a polyamorous person, you know, that door is open that we may have a casual sexual relationship months or years after our romantic relationship ended. It just depends on where we're at in our lives. Yeah. And I just feel like, you know, the relationship kind of tells you where it's going, mm-hmm. you know. How do you introduce yourself to new partners or how do you introduce new partners into the relationship? Basically, I let them know what I have to offer. I basically try to talk them out of dating me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been trying not to laugh a lot of times during this podcast. That was one I couldn't, I couldn't hold on to that one. <laughs> I basically say, here's the thing. I find you really attractive. I want to get to know you better. And I'm not ruling out sex if you're, you know, amenable to that. However, I have a full-time job. I run a nonprofit organization. I have a primary partner. I have a girlfriend. So you're never going to be my emergency contact. I'm probably never going to be yours. You know, if you're cool with that, let's go out on a date. If you're absolutely not cool with that, then let's be friends. So here's what I just heard. So I'm laying out my intentions. I'm being honest about who I am. I'm being honest about what I have going on. I have passions that I care about. I'm employed. While you say you're talking them out of dating you, what you're saying is I'm a high value individual and I'm honest about what my intentions are. What do you think? Like you just put it, you literally bring the table and set the table and you leave the rest to them. Yeah. And to me, it's like basically saying, okay, here's a really delicious meal. I hate, why am I using food analogies hey, when man, I hate them? Must like, be hungry. <laughs> here's a really delicious meal. It's got chicken and beef in it. If you're vegan, tell me. If you're vegetarian, tell me. If you're a meat eater, this conversation can continue. I feel like I just compared myself to beef, which is wow. No, don't do that. But basically, I don't want to set any false expectations. Uh-huh. And, and nature abhors a vacuum. If I don't say anything, they're going to project upon me whatever they want. So if I ask a woman out on a date and I don't tell her what's up, she's pro- if she's interested in me, she's probably thinking, okay, potential boyfriend, potential husband. And she's going to give in that relationship on the level that you give if this is someone you think is going to be a primary partner. And if I take that, I'm being dishonest. Even if I'm even if I'm not telling her we could potentially be married or we could potentially be primary partners, my silence in taking that, I think, is a lie of omission. I want everybody to know going into a relationship with me what to expect. And if the expectations change, and sometimes they do, we can talk about it when it happens. But don't go into this expecting that because it probably won't happen 
Don't expect that you're going to see me every weekend. Don't expect that I'm going to be available to go to a wedding with you on a Saturday, unless you give me like several weeks in advance notice. You know, just I want to set realistic expectations so people can opt out. Because when I was, you know, a baby polyamorous person, a lot of times I was kind of quiet about that. Or I would tell people I was polyamorous and if they were into me enough and they were monogamous, they would pretend to be okay. And it would become really obvious within like a few dates, oh, they're trying to change me and it's not going to happen. And I need to acknowledge that and maybe be smart enough for both of us and break this up before I hurt them. Mm -hmm. This sounds like something that monogamous daters, people, couples can learn about from the polyamorous community, which is being clear and upfront about intentions and being able to move forward from there because I've known that in monogamous relationships that I've always been in, a lot of these conversations that I'm hearing polyamorous people have just aren't had. And these seem to be very important conversations once it enters your range of awareness that it's okay to have these kinds of conversations. So being able to say, hey, here's how much time I can give you. Here are the other things that I have going on. I'm bringing beef and chicken to the table. If you're vegan, this won't work. This is an important aspect of any relationship. One question I wanted to ask you was, are you polyamorous only if you're having sex with all of your other partners or are there different levels or layers of relationships? Um, I've met someone who has recently, she has an asexual partner. And so in that case, she's still polyamorous, even though she's not having sex with the partner. So can we talk a little bit through that? Well, I feel like I have a lot of intimate friendships and their relationships, small R relationships, they're not capital R relationships. Um, I don't consider that part of my polyamory. I just have like really intense relationships with my friends, but some of my friends are in the BDSM community and we may play together in a BDSM context and not have sex. I don't necessarily consider them a polyamorous partner, but they're a play partner. You know, my, my fiance might not consider them a, a metamor the way she would consider my girlfriend a metamor. But I feel like if you have a partner who is asexual and your relationship is as romantic and as intimate as a typical sexual relationship, there just isn't sex involved, well then, yeah, that's your partner. That's part of your polyamory. So I absolutely think that you can be in polyamorous relationships without sex just the way you can be in marriages without sex, whether it's by choice or by circumstance. So absolutely, I think that's valid. Okay. All right, now we can finally move on to the second question of the two questions <laughs> where we went from questioning your kinks and what turns you on to now questioning your sexualities, questioning your attraction and who you're attracted to. How are you on time? I'm good. Man. Okay, cool, cool. This is interesting because this is a conversation that I just had. Was this about the tank thing? The what? The tank situation? No, oh, okay. I've, I've heard of that. But no, it's a conversation that I just had because I'm, I'm very much a part of the queer community. And I identify as queer. I identify as a queer heterosexual. Well, one of my role models when I got involved in sex education was Tristan Terramino. And... Someone asked her if she, like, still identified as a lesbian or if she identified as bisexual, you know, if she was dating a cisgender man or if she was dating, you know, a trans man or what have you. And she basically said, I identify as queer because queer is bigger than all of that. 
queer is my politics, queer is my history, queer is my community, queer is my culture. It's more than the gender of whomever I happen to be fucking. And I'm sure there are people in the who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, who would push back on me for claiming this word as a heterosexual person. And I acknowledge that. And, I've, and, and to some degree, I think that's valid. But that statement from Tristan Terramino kind of gave me permission in my head to claim the title queer, even as a heterosexual person. I usually follow it with heterosexual just as like a, a modifier. It's like saying you're a male stripper or a male prostitute. You know, it's it can be, you know, very gendered or whatever, but because you sort of know where people's heads are going when you say just queer, like automatically they're thinking you're gay or bi or what have you. Or like kind of gay, I guess. Yeah. Um, but because I feel like I am a kinky, polyamorous, nudist, a former sex worker. I run a, a sex education organization. You know, I'm queer as a frog with a mustache holding a $3 bill. I just happen to be attracted to women. And I struggled with this. I didn't come with this overnight. Like, there were times when I thought I was gay. Well, there's no space for you. So you essentially had to take from what is available and create your own space and put it in there. I kind of had to create my own lane. And there were times when I thought I was gay, which made no sense because I'm not attracted to cisgender men. Uh, Dave Navarro being, like, one exception. Um, and... There was, I, I, it's so embarrassing to admit it, but yes, I was one of those male identified lesbians or lesbian identified men in the nineties. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I'm a human being. Prick me. I bleed. Um, I had a, okay. I'm going to use a term that is not available to me for the purpose of telling the story, but I have a pair of dog tags that say dyke on them that I bought in the nineties as a 46 year old man, as opposed to a 20 something, I cringe to think that I thought it was appropriate for me to wear that. But I, I felt I, I identified as a male lesbian for a while because that made the most sense to me because identifying as a straight man just didn't work, even though I was attracted to women. Um, so I've come and I was having this somewhat uncomfortable, con it's always a somewhat uncomfortable conversation recently I don't date transgender men, not because I don't find them attractive, I do, but I feel like my heterosexual identity is so strong and such a part of who I am that for me to date someone who is a trans man is kind of doing them a disservice. Um, so, Well, that makes sense, though. Like, now, give, <clears throat> given the context of understanding here, um, trans woman I, I hate that we even need to use the word trans because to me that is a person who wants to be seen as a woman and that word is just reinforcing the fact that they'll never be seen as a woman or man but if we're talking about trans men being attracted to you like you can be attracted to whatever you're attracted to but it makes sense that you feel like you're sort of challenging their identity because you so strongly feel attraction to women to a person who doesn't identify as the thing that you're attracted to. Yeah. I, I think that can be wild triggering for trans men who are feeling like they're always having their, not just their mask. I think there's a difference between gender and masculinity, but just not just having their masculinity question. Cause I have my masculinity question as a cisgender man, but my gender's never questioned. 
So I think that for a trans man, feeling like your gender is being questioned even with your partner to a certain extent because I'm not attracted to cis men and I identify as heterosexual, I get that. And so I don't want to put someone else in that position. Um, But yeah, I struggled with how to identify my sexuality for a long time before I kind of landed on queer heterosexual. And that to me, and I've had people argue with me that I'm bisexual because I've dated transgender men in the past, but that label just doesn't, it doesn't feel right for me. And the same people, it's typically people in the gay community, more so than like straight people trying to throw these labels on me, but people in the gay community saying, well, you know, you've dated men, so you're bi. Words have meanings, and there's a dictionary definition for bisexual. Well, if you can identify as what you identify as, sexuality changes. It evolves. Like, you can be attracted to attraction i'm sorry attraction changes and evolves so you can be attracted to one identification and find yourself attracted to another and losing attraction to what you normally were in the past attracted to so why is it a problem that people are trying to like latch on to this no 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 you're this because of your past well i think there's a difference between like sexual orientations and political identities so i know lots of lesbian women who had partners who were presenting as female and identified as lesbians who later in life transitioned and are now living their lives as men so they're they're trans men and i think what often happens to the woman who identifies as a lesbian is there's this period of well what does this mean now you're the same person i fell in love with but now but now you're living your life as a man What does that do to my lesbian identity? And I would never go to a lesbian woman, lesbian identified woman whose partner has just transitioned and said, ha ha, you're straight now. You know, I'm not going to do that. And I don't think the people that are saying you're bisexual, accept it to me, would do that either. I get that there's a difference from a political standpoint because remaining in my heterosexual identity gives me access to privilege that a gay person or a lesbian person doesn't have access to. But, and I feel like it would be different if I were, you know, metaphorically in the closet. Um, But it's like, I'm not in the closet about my sexuality at all. You can Google me and read a 400-word essay on my sexuality. So it's not like I'm claiming heterosexual for a political advantage uh, and, and keeping that part of myself hidden. I'm not. But I also realized that there's 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 what I, there's privilege, but then also there's like cultural cachet. I have a lot of privilege as a heterosexual person. There's a cultural cachet to being clear queer, especially in my community. Like not in the broad default world where being queer is a you know considered a negative and leads to you know job discrimination and housing discrimination and can lead to abuse and death. But amongst my friends, being queer is cool. So you could say that I'm trying to have it both ways by being heterosexual and having heterosexual privilege, but also being considered queer. But also, I recognize that because I have this privilege, there are certain spaces that I don't want to occupy. There's certain places where I don't want to take up space just because I claim queer identity because I don't want to walk my heterosexual privilege into this room because 
hey, we're all queers here, but I'm, you know, but I'm the one that won't get fired from my job because of who I love. So I feel like it's kind of a balancing act of using my privilege on behalf of people that don't have it and also knowing when not to take space from them and when not to occupy spaces that they should be in because they have less privilege than me and they deserve those spaces. Yeah, that's very well put, very well put. Um, I brought up earlier the tank thing, and I feel like I should elaborate on that because I said it, but um, I don't know the full story, but I've just seen this shitty response of homophobia by men who, Tank is an R&B singer, who... The headline said, Tank says you're not gay if you sucked a few dicks. I think that was what the headline was. And just the outrage from people, from straight identifying people, led me to believe, like, wow, there's some serious hate there and there's some homophobia there. Like, why does it matter, first of all? And then, two, why, where's this hate coming from? So... My question that I ask myself, because no one can give me a straight fucking answer, is does questioning your sexual identity being met with a situation that puts you into questioning your own sexual identity, sexual attraction, make you not straight? I feel like if anything, it would reinforce what it should reinforce what you believe. But it seems that people are so afraid of not being what they thought they were or having their identities challenged, that it just shows up in this wall of rage? Well, I think that in the mainstream world, in the default world, sexuality is still seen as, if not binary, then very set. You know, it's not seen as a spectrum or a continuum, and it's not seen as fluid. And so I feel like you know, if you question your sexuality, it doesn't mean that you're not straight, but it may mean that you're not as straight as you thought you were. And that's okay. And that doesn't even necessarily make you gay. It just makes you maybe less straight than you thought you were. You know, like I identify as a heterosexual. If Dave Navarro walked into this room and said, you know, fix it up, I'd be like, okay. I mean, it is what it is. Um, and also, I feel like I'm surprised. I've heard about the tank thing, but I didn't really look into it, which, which surprises me because normally, anytime like a heterosexual black man enters that space, like I'm all on it. Like Malik Yoba, oh man, from the actor from New York Our, Undercover. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had so much high hopes for him when he came out and said that he was attracted to trans women. I was like, oh, this is awesome. But he's so problematic. Like everything oh, he said why? since then, it's just. He's, I feel like he's taking up a lot of space that as a, you know, heterosexual identified cisgender man, he should not be taking up in the fight for transgender rights. Well, and he's really making it about him and not the people oh, he's advocating for. Okay. All right. So I know that he was on the breakfast club and he brought with him a gay man and two trans women. And on that, I do believe that more of the conversation was shifted directly at him than it was about the voices that he brought on to share this space with him. So now that you're saying that and I'm reflecting back on the interview, that's kind of where I can see this. But like what can be done differently? He brought them on the show in hopes of I'm going to assume that that was the intention of uplifting their voices. 
Well, he's been accused of sexual assault by a trans woman. So there's that. And I don't know if it's, you know, and my default position is to believe the accuser, but also people lie. And I'm not saying women be lying. I'm just saying people in general lie. And false accusations of sexual assault are very rare. Based on the research that I've done, it's comparable to false accusations of any crime. There's not significantly more false accusations of sexual assault than there are like false accusations of regular assault or burglary or car theft or whatever. So I'm not saying that he did it. The fact that he's been accused, it looks bad. For him sort of self-appointing himself as this like transgender ally and this accusation comes, he's also said some problematic things like, he understands what it, what transgender people go through because he did an episode of New York Undercover where he was undercover in drag. And it's like, no, my dude, <laughs> you don't, you don't. So, but I had such high hopes for that. When Mr. C, uh, the DJ uh, for Big Daddy Kane and the radio DJ uh, got caught with a transgender sex worker, I had high hopes for him. And also I had high hopes for where that conversation in the black community would go. Because especially with like guys who were like in hip hop, you know, any accusation of being, you know, bisexual or gay or being attracted to transgender people, it it can be a very uncomfortable but very necessary conversation. And I feel like, I don't think black people are more homophobic or more transphobic than white people, but I feel like as black people, we live at this intersection of white supremacy and. So for black folks, I don't think we can necessarily always untangle um, sexism from white supremacy or homophobia from white supremacy or transphobia from white supremacy. So I feel like when we talk about the homophobia or transphobia of the black community, we have to look at it through this white supremacy lens. We have internalized white supremacy and we rebel against it simultaneously. And that affects our vision of masculinity and femininity and manhood and womanhood and relationships. So one thing I mentioned to you at the happy hour when we, when we met was as a, you know, kinky, submissive black man who's often in interracial relationships, I'm constantly feeling like I have to defend my right to live my authentic sexual self without being accused of being a tool in a vast white supremacist conspiracy to destroy the black family by feminizing the black man, right? And I get that because what did they do to the slave, the male slaves? They castrated them. What did they do to the female slaves? They raped them. There was a lot of sexual torture involved in slavery and white supremacy and dominance. And so, you know, we see those echoes of history. I mean, still, even in the prison system, you know, so many prisoners uh, report being like sexually assaulted by, you know, white COs, black prisoners, um, you know, being, you know, raped or having their genitals tortured by white COs. There's this, this weird, you know, intersection of like sex and race that happens when we talk about a white supremacy and power dynamics. So I understand why. And also I feel like for black people in particular, our society is kind of matriarchal you know, because of single parenthood and incarceration rates and things like that, a lot of times it's black women that are really keeping families together. So you have, you know, young black men growing up without, you know, fathers in the home. I don't want to get into like all the stereotypes involved with that. But when you already have somewhat of a matriarchal society, 
there can be a feeling that your masculinity is already being challenged in general, even if you're heterosexual, Mm -hmm. you know? So to have allegations of being gay or bi layered on top of that as a black man, whether it's coming from white people or it's coming from black people, it can be more intense. So I get that. And so it can be a hard space to live in, but I feel like myself as someone who, and I'm not, I am not free of toxic masculinity. None of us are. I've internalized a lot of it. But as someone who I think has, through time and education and practice, freed myself from a lot of toxic masculinity, um, I feel like I have a responsibility to talk about these issues and just be an example because there aren't there aren't a whole lot of guys, especially like heterosexual black guys, talking about these issues. I'll say it doesn't feel it doesn't feel safe. I don't feel supported in being a black cisgendered straight man coming into the public eye and saying toxic masculinity like this is the problem with it you know what i mean because if a gay black man were to do it that gay black man has the support of the lgbt community who am i supported by especially because i date white women as well so my status is sort of in question because it's like nigga you date white girls (laughs) <laughs> so no doubt. who's going to support no me? Doubt. And I feel like having a lot of conversations talking about reproductive rights. You know, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but that was one of the things. Tupac, for instance, with uh, Keep Your Head Up in that song, like talks about, you know, in that first verse just goes into one of our issues. It's like men need to speak up. That's essentially what it was. But in a world where men are being thrown toxic masculinity at how am I supposed to feel supported and safe in being able to stand up and speak up for what I know is right without taking up space for someone who should be there talking about it well I think that it's really about your audience we need to be talking about toxic masculinity to other men especially gay men but definitely straight men women don't need lessons on feminism from men necessarily. There are times when there'll be a discussion going on like online about a feminist issue and I will feel like I have a very good counter argument and I will keep it to myself because I feel like if I'm the only one who feels this way and I'm the only man in the conversation, there's a good chance I'm wrong and I just don't see it. And if I'm right, there's got to be another woman out there who agrees with me who can say it and, and she'll be heard and my gender will not become the focus of that conversation. So that's, that's, that's what happened. That's a place where I should not take up space. Now, if there's a mainstream feminist argument that's being supported by the majority of women and rejected by the majority of men, and I agree with it, my place is to have that conversation with other men, to call the men in and advocate on behalf of women or to call the straight people in and advocate on behalf of gay people or to call the cisgender people in and advocate on behalf of transgender people, not speak for them, but use my privilege to access those spaces where I can advocate for them because I'm as a heterosexual uh, cisgender man, who's also a Christian, I have access to a lot of spaces And people will hear me differently. If a gay man talks about toxic masculinity, a lot of people are going to dismiss it offhand. Well, well, you're gay. Whereas as a heterosexual man, they still may disagree with me, 
but I think it's going to resonate with them a little bit more because they can't dismiss me because I'm gay. And if they, if they hear the same message from a second heterosexual man and a third, even if they don't agree, they can no longer say, well, I feel this way and any heterosexual man's going to agree with me. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to be dissenting voices and advocating for people that don't have your privilege. Yeah. That's very well said, man. And you, for example, like, thank you for putting yourself in this space and giving yourself your identities and just fucking having the radical audacity to be yourself. Because, like I said, I lit up when I walked into the room and I was like, oh, black dude. Oh, another black. Oh, shit. There's a few of us here. I felt represented. I felt I belong in that space. And then to hear you, like, I I just kind of assumed that I was going into a space where there'd probably be more uh, people who identified with the LGBT community. So to hear, you know, heterosexual black man who's polyamorous, I was just like, whoa, like there's someone I can learn from. And so I thank you for being in this space, for making yourself seen. And I agree with you that as we dive deeper into the spaces that we occupy yeah we'll see another black person here someone who looks like us or who represents values beliefs that we have as well so yeah just in continuing to do this like if you're someone who feels like there's not support in the spaces that you choose to occupy or want more uh you want to be in more more involved with like continue keep looking if you look you'll find it like that's my overall message i want to make sure that we covered everything And I strongly believe that we did. I want to bring home the element of questioning your sexuality, questioning your kinks, because we did cover that a lot. But I want to make sure to drive that point home. I believe that we should be able to question our sexuality, question our attraction, and then be able to accept whatever it is. So being able to bring awareness into the fact that it's okay, it's normal, to question your sexuality, what's some advice that you can give to a person who thinks that that's not okay? Um, The most important question that I've learned to ask myself in any situation is what if the opposite were true? So if I believe something about myself, about other people, about the world, and I believed it my whole life and I've never questioned it or I got it from my parents or I got it from the larger culture, if that belief is limiting me in any other in any way, if, if acting on that belief is not making me happy, or it's not making me as happy as I could be, I simply ask myself, what if the opposite were true? It's like, oh, I'm a heterosexual man, and that means this, this, and this. That means I have to do these things, and I absolutely cannot do these things. Okay, I've just put myself in a box. I've just limited my freedom. And maybe... I'm telling myself that, maybe society is telling me that, maybe my parents are telling me that, but I've internalized this belief. So I simply ask myself, what if the opposite were true? What is the worst thing that could happen if I, as a heterosexual man, allowed myself to be tied up and beaten? Or if I, as a heterosexual man, uh, dated a, a transgender woman or dated a transgender man? Or what if I, as a upstanding member of the community, through a party where everybody could get naked. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? What, what's the best thing that can happen? Which is a question we often don't ask. So, like, what if the opposite of what I have believed and acted on my whole life were true? And just sort of, and it doesn't mean you have to run out and 
have crazy sex or whatever. It just means allow yourself to, in your mind, live in that space for five minutes. And then maybe you do it and you never think about it again. Or maybe once you sort of open that Pandora's box, you start looking at the world differently. And maybe that adds joy and freedom to your life. And you go on adventures and you meet people and you have experiences that you would not have had if you just let that limiting belief remain unchallenged. So if you're questioning your sexuality, I would say, A, take any limiting belief that is stopping you from exploring that and say, what if the opposite were true? And just live in that space for a while and know that it's okay. You know, if you're a heterosexual man and you have fantasies about having sex with men, that's okay. It's okay if you never do it. It's okay if you masturbate thinking about having sex with men and you only have sex with women. It's okay if you have sex with a guy and think, oh, this is awesome. It's okay if you have sex with a guy and go, you know what? This isn't for me. You know, it's okay. You are who you are, no matter what label you put on it. So just be yourself, be free, be happy, don't hurt anybody. Yeah, and I think that if we can get out of a space of worrying about what other people are going to think of us, if they found out we did the thing that we did, then we'd be a lot happier people. So the theme here is just freedom, like free yourself, allow yourself to be who you are. And if you're questioning your identity and who you are, then that's just your spirit's way of communicating with you that you need to be in alignment with your behaviors and what you believe. But we got to stop shadowing our beliefs with shame and begin to bring them in the light so we can live it. Amen. Thanks, David. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to Something Positive for Positive People. This podcast has extended beyond just being about STDs. It's now becoming more of a tool that helps people address trauma, address their shame, and begin to look at other people who went through some sort of uh, traumatic life situation. While an STI diagnosis is probably generally where you're going to kind of get to this space, It's more than that. It's all stories of adversity and healing. And we can learn so much from the guests that we have on this podcast about healing our own trauma, looking at our own shame. And we see that it's not even about the stigma, really. So I'm hoping that these kinds of podcast episodes are going to be useful and encourage more conversations like this. I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's a huge echo in the room now. Um, I'm still recording in my closet, but it's not as full as it once was. And when I'm ready to talk about it, I'll go into more detail about what that is. But I'll have to fill some stuff in here to keep the echo from bouncing off um, or something. We'll figure that all out. Uh, I want to thank Waxo for their ongoing continued support of something positive for positive people. I'm going to write, well, I've written at this point a few different articles um, just elaborating more on this particular podcast episode. And I encourage you to go and check those out. Uh, One's going to be centered around like questioning your sexuality, race play, and a few other ideas are popping into my mind, like even as I record this one and as I write more. So I encourage you to go check out Waxo, W-A-X-O-H. And until next time, stay sex positive.